0: everyone, welcome to another edition of Coping with COVID. Hope you're all so proud of yourselves out there. You founders fighting the good fight, the gladiators in the ring. I used to be in the ring there, but now I'm an angel investor. So I'm back in the sidelines, hanging out with my son, Colin here while you're fighting the good fight, but I still want to help support founders. I'm a big advocate here for founders in the Lansing area, and I wanted to support you by bringing in people who are doing interesting things, amazing things, exceptional things, like our guest today, Ferris Sabetti. So you can ask them your questions and we can all grow and learn together. With me as usual is my co-host, Amanda. Amanda, welcome to the program.
1: Hi everybody, hope you're doing well. We're so excited to have you on this last episode for what might be our first season. Um, Thank you for joining us and we're very, very excited to have Ferris on who I've known for a few years, but I know David, you know him uh, pretty closely. So I think he should introduce Ferris for us.
0: Absolutely. Ferris, I've known you for at least three years. I, I remember working with you, well, working in the same location yeah. with you in the TechStars building in Ford field three years ago, we were like the only two in yeah. the office, you know, before the sun was coming up, trekking through in the, in the snow to get down there in Detroit, uh, Ferris, is the CEO of MySwimPro. swim pro My swim pro makes a mobile app that's used by downloaded by over a million people and helps people improve their performance in the pool and their health. Ferris is also the founder of world swim day. Uh, and Ferris is a award-winning three times us master swimming individual national champion winner, a uh, certified USA triathlon coach, American Swim Coaches Association Fellow. He's, what is it, Forbes 30 Under 30? You. Yep. And before launching My Swim Pro, Ferris led digital marketing at multiple venture-backed
2: technology startups. Ferris, welcome to the program, my man. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Excited to be here. And thank you for having me on in the the finale of season one. Uh, I, a lot of pressure, I guess
0: yeah we I'm, I'm excited, excited to have you here. there There's so much to cover. Um, maybe go back, let's let's go back. you know, before my swim pro, when you were at these other venture backed startups, what were you what were you working on there?
2: Yeah, so one company was a e-commerce startup. Uh, another company was this HR recruiting software. Uh, Not, I would say what I'm doing now is probably more interesting and fitting, like with swimming and health and fitness is is probably more of my wheelhouse. But I definitely learned a lot working at these early stage companies. Um, And before those two, actually, I was part of the Challenge Detroit Fellowship Program, which is a nonprofit, helps other nonprofits in the Detroit area. Uh, So I learned a lot there. I was actually working for the fellowship program. So not sure if anyone's familiar with Challenge Detroit, but, you know, attract and retain talent to the region there's 30 fellows in the program and i did that for a year and it was a really great experience i worked with the two founders of the organization so i was really you know even though it's not like a tech startup kind of the other two and what i'm doing now you know working with a very small team wearing a lot of hats i was doing i was doing a lot of the videos you know writing on the blog social media um a lot of that stuff i did at the other two companies as well and then before that when i was in college I worked at a startup called Swim Spray, and it's this physical product that eliminates chlorine from your hair and skin. And that company was started by a bunch of swimmers, college, former college swimmers at Princeton. And they all put together, one of them was like a chemist and he put together this formula and this product. And then I was working remote with them doing marketing, doing videos and social and going to events on behalf of the company. Um, And then before that, like when I was a teenager, I was doing a lot of different entrepreneurial things, whether it was doing like freelance uh, video projects, or any type of marketing-ish consulting. I don't know if you would call it marketing consulting, but the equivalent of that back like 10, 15 years ago. So um, long to, to recap, I've done a lot of different little things. And now for the last five years, I've been focusing on my swim Pro. Sounds like
0: at an early age, you you knew you wanted to be in the entrepreneur game. You knew I don't want to work for some big company.
2: Is that right? So, I, I, I think so, but I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know what entrepreneurship was, like if you were to def- try and define it or, the way the way it's portrayed right now in, in the media or the w- when you meet an entrepreneur, uh, now I think there's a better understanding of what that actually means compared to maybe 10 to 15 years ago, especially for me, you know, as a teenager, I was just trying to figure out, oh, there's this problem, I can solve it. Or I can, there's someone's willing to pay money for something and I could be the one making the money from that transaction. So that's how I was I was always thinking about things. I wasn't really trying to be like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I definitely, today still, I really enjoy the ability to have an impact and a lot of control over what you're working on, which the the bigger, the organization you're working with, if you're working with, you know, 300 people, you know, you can have a pretty critical role and you can have a lot of impact, but that's not the same as if you're the only person, you know, creating the value. Um, So there's definitely opportunities with a big company and being able to impact a lot of people, but I never was really paying attention to that that much. I was more so thinking about this is an interesting opportunity. I want to, get my hands involved with this. I want to, you know, be, I want to be like boots on the ground and and really figure out how to help people. And uh, another thing with, with the whole entrepreneurship and trying to figure out if you want to do that early on. I mean, like I said, it wasn't something that I was actively trying to be an entrepreneur. I mean, I did consider actually like out of college, I'm like, Oh, let me, you know, I actually had, um, there was a senior leadership program at Quicken Loans that I got into. And you would have done like a few weeks at different parts of the company and all that and I was looking at like consulting and I think there were elements of all of those things that were interesting to me and I never actually went through with going to a very big company and I think that was a good choice and I and I, if I had gone to that I probably would have realized quickly or working through side hustles or something else I would have realized like that probably wasn't the best fit for me. I feel like you're
0: just reading my mind. I was wondering like if, if looking back on it, if you thought those experiences working for those other companies were critical in starting MySwimPro, or if you wish that you would have started your first company earlier instead of working for those other companies?
2: Yeah. So I when I started MySwimPro, it was never like I'm going to start a company now. It was more so I, I was already working at a tech startup and I was coaching swimming on the side in the mornings and at nights, and I just saw this problem that it needed to be solved. And there was nothing really good in the market that was doing that. So I thought in the back of my mind, this could be a company, but let me figure out if like do the the research ahead of time before just, I'm starting a a big company or something. So it was more about how do I, how do I do the research, figure out if this is like really a problem worth solving and doing that initial customer discovery and, and setting stuff up on the side while I was working at the other company. And then eventually it became a company. So to answer your question, it was, it wasn't like I'm gonna go out and just start a, a company and this is the right time to do it. It happened organically. And I think the timing for me, it happened like spot on it, it. If you start a company without having ever worked at any startup or have that much like work experience at all, that's probably fine as long as you can learn really quickly and and pull in the right mentors and and like tap into the right resources. I think you have to do that regardless of when you start a company, but it becomes more critical the less experience you have In specific things, so I think for me, having worked at a few different startups uh, validated that that's the right environment for me. And then, yeah, you learn a lot when you work. You learn way more the smaller the organization, and the more there's two things. I think you learn the most when the company is small and you have a lot of things to do that you can get your hands involved with. But the other half of it that I think is not talked about as much, it's not just having that experience; it's being mentored and working with entrepreneurs who know what they're doing. Because you can you can work at like an early stage. Thing, like company, nonprofit, whatever. But it, and, and if you're like the number two or you're the first employee, but if the CEO, if the founder doesn't actually know what they're doing and they're kind of just like, they're figuring it out as well with you, then you're not going to be, you're not going to learn as much as quickly as if you're the first employee or the number two or the co-founder with someone who actually has done this multiple times before. And I'm really fortunate that the organizations I was with it was arranged. There were some who were figuring it out and there were some who were super experienced. So I could definitely see the difference in the, the strategy and the execution and actually figuring out how to do stuff. It, and you, it's a very, there's a huge gap between an entrepreneur who knows what they're doing and has done it multiple times and someone who's just kind of figuring it out for the first time. So that's, I think the other half of it, that's probably not talked about as much.
1: I was actually an employee number two at a startup before getting into freelancing and in bamboo, it was an ad agency. And I think it was really fascinating. She was a first time founder, but she had a lot of experience in the, the advertising world. Um, and this was at the time when people didn't believe in social media just yet. They all wanted it. I was the one that got thrown all the social media work. Um, but what was fascinating about it is I also had to hire people, train people like fresh out of college, create processes. Everything got thrown at me in all kinds of ways. And so you're right, you get exposure to all of these bits and pieces of a business behind the scene more so than you would at a bigger team.
2: Yep,
1: 100%. So Ferris, what made you wanna start MySwimPro? And someone chimed in on the chat box that they think you're one of the, the few startups they know of a MetroTrait that has a really successful app. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on how you built that app and got up to a million downloads. I think that is huge.
2: Cool. Awesome. Uh Thanks for the shout out in the comments. I don't see that one. That's sweet. Um, Yeah, I think the reason why I started the company, I touched on it a little bit, but I was never trying to like start a swimming company or start a technology company or whatever. I, I knew I would be, I'm very entrepreneurial in just the way I approach everything. And I f- figured at some point in my life, maybe I'm going to start a company, but I was never, and it's funny because like at the time I was like 22, 23, I wasn't very good at thinking long-term. Maybe it seems like it, but I'm not very good at like projecting out like, okay, in 10 years, I'm going to be doing this. And in five years, it was more like one day at a time in my life at that point. And so it, w- it really was so organic. I'm coaching swimming and I just see the problem starting to, to stand out to me. Um The main problem is that people who swim on their own, they don't have a coach. They're trying to get better. They don't know how to get better. And if you if you think about that specific problem, like what we're doing at MySwimPro, it's very relatable in a lot of things. So if you're trying to learn a new skill, a lot of times people go to Google, they go to YouTube and they'll type in YouTube, how do I, like if you're trying to learn a new uh, recipe or if you're trying to learn how to... Um, build uh, a fence or something like that so you'll go to youtube you'll go you'll find all these resources and you'll figure out how to do it that way and you can do the same thing in swimming like you know how do you improve your swimming technique how do you do freestyle or breaststroke or whatever you can do that but swimming every every one of those verticals or, or niches like whether it's building a fence a recipe or swimming they all have uh specific things that make them unique so obviously it's not there's certain ways that you can learn how to cook that recipe or build that fence or learn that swimming technique in in different ways that will be more beneficial than just going to YouTube. So in fitness, there's already a lot of fitness apps that are for running and biking and weightlifting and yoga and meditation. There's like a bajillion for meditation right now, uh, which is good because mental health is important. But at the time, there were not really, there's nothing really good for swimming to really guide you through a structured program to help you improve your performance and, and health. And so back in like 2014, there were, I think 40,000 apps in the health and fitness category and just a handful kind of doing something in swimming. And when you have, when you're immersed in the sport, like I was, and I swam through college and I like, this is something I know a lot about. And from the coaching perspective too, and it just seems so obvious. Like, why is there not like, how is this not possible? Like, how is this not happened already? Like, why isn't there? And if anything, if there was already a great swimming product on the market, I wouldn't have started the company because like well check that off it's perfect that's what the answer is um and because that didn't exist back in 2014 i wanted to go out and validate that this was really uh there's a reason why this problem has not been solved yet and there's a number of reasons why that was but to fast forward you know early 2015 we launched the application i met one of my co-founders at detroit startup weekend in grand circus actually so shout out to grand circuit the- Anyone's been in that neck of the woods, but um, they had a Detroit Startup Weekend event held there. I met one of my co founders a couple of weeks later, met another, um, our now CTO, Adam. And in the early 2015, we launched the app. It was a free app. And at the time, you know, still working at the other tech startups. So everyone's working nights and weekends at this point. And if you fast forward a little bit more, eventually, you know, we all went full time and we got to that million downloads. It took like four years I think so 2015 we launched and then last year we passed a million in total and I I was asked about this not that long ago about like how do you get to a million downloads and there's the obvious stuff which is well it has to be you know the app store optimization like the keywords like people need to be able to find the app in the app store it's very similar to YouTube and Google like if you don't have the right keywords if people are not actually searching for it if and then and then similar to Google being smart and it knows like know when someone goes to a website are they actually staying on the website are they reading through whatever it is that is on this article it's the same thing with the app store so if someone's downloading the app you know what is the app store rating how much time are people spending in the app so you have to have a good product similar to youtube you have to have a video that people can keep watching for more than a a couple of seconds or on a a blog for seo when you go to a website and you read an article it has to be something that they're not going to immediately leave the page if they spend more time they click through more things same thing happens in, in the app store. So number one, if you want to get downloads, you have to have a product that people like and they use and has a semi-high app store rating because ultimately that's the biggest driver of new download acquisition. It's very similar to a blog. Most of the traffic is going to come through organic search. You can certainly buy. I mean, you can definitely do Facebook ads and Instagram ads, and there's so many different ad products that you could potentially do. And we've done a little bit of that, but I would say that's not really the right, most apps actually, they don't, unless it's like a gaming app or something built by like a studio, most apps come from organic traffic. So anyone who's telling you to go and buy a bunch of ads for an app in the very beginning, that's completely wrong. There's no circumstance where that is the correct thing to do. Uh, once you're at scale and you like for us, it, it's more logical to say, okay, you've got a product, you fine tuned a lot of things. Now let's go put $100,000 a month into Facebook ads and get a lot more people use downloading the application or re engaging who already churned out of it. So we're at a different scale. You're saying like
0: build something that solves a problem, then people will like it naturally and they'll share it. Then you can use ads to pour gasoline on that fire and get it growing more. Versus if you've got a garbage product at the beginning and you get a million downloads, all those people are just going to leave and it's not going to rank in the app store and nobody's going to care about it.
2: Is that, that yeah, what you're saying? Totally. That's exactly it. Like really, you know, a lot of people, they, that's probably the most common question I get in LinkedIn DM. I probably get five to 10 per week. Hey, Ferris, I love what you're doing with my swim pro. I have this idea for an app. I get some version of that five to 10 times a week. And I actually created a YouTube video where I answered that question of how you make an app and all that stuff. So I just send them that now. But to summarize what that YouTube <laughs> video is, um, basically it comes down to solving a problem. So more important than finding like a technical co-founder or should I hire someone online or hire a development shop to build this product for me? None of that really matters if you don't figure out the right problem to solve and actually... Uh, you know, more so than like, what is the design of the app? And like, what, maybe if we put this button here, like, what is the actual purpose of having the app in the first place? And I mentioned it for my swim pro. It's about delivering this personalized training experience, this workout uh, UI UX. So that way, if you don't have a coach, you can get the equivalent or sort of the equivalent of, of having that personal coach in an app format. It could have been a website. It could have been, I mean, when I started the company, the Apple watch didn't exist. It wasn't a thing. And now two thirds of our paying subscribers Are with a smartwatch of some kind. So, you know, it just goes to show like how much the market can shift, your technology can change. Maybe an app is the best thing to do. Maybe it's not, maybe it's a website. But things will evolve. But if you stay true to solving a problem and the core value proposition that you're trying to deliver, that is more important than anything. So to kind of tie it back. I love your focus on the solving the problem. I do want to hop back to one thing you said though. You talked about
0: working for other people and doing this company in nights and weekends until eventually you were like, Hey, we've got enough to leave our full-time jobs. I feel like that's the Holy grail. I tried to do that in 2012. My problem was the problems at work. I were always, you know, running my mind and there was always something more urgent at the job I was at than carving out time to work on my side project. And so I, I knew for me, I had to quit my, I had to quit my job to start my company or else it would just never happen for me. How did you, how did you make that happen? How did you do that? Yeah, a,
1: moment. yeah, I'd love to hear that actual moment.
2: Yeah, I think from the very beginning, we, myself and my two co-founders, we knew this was something we wanted to be like a full-time, like real technology company and not just something that was on the side. So that's what we were working towards the whole time. And we, I set like milestones of, and very, not milestones in terms of like performance more so like, these are the things that we need to get done at, at by this point, by this point, by this point. And that's what we're working towards. The metrics will follow, but you can't like, you can't quit your job if you haven't done anything yet, right? So you have to have you have to have accomplished certain things and show the right traction. So if we were to accomplish, you know, call it A, B, C, D, and nothing happened in terms instead so of calling what- A, B, C, D, let's what were those what were those goals and milestones you had. Sure. So the most obvious one is launch the app in the app store, right? Let's call that a, so, you know, put the, so we, we, we built something in Detroit startup weekend. It's like, okay, here's an MVP, right? Well, that's great, but we need to put it in front of people. So the way you do that is the app store. So let's actually put it out there. So that was uh, February or January, 2015, the very beginning, we were working on an end of 2014. So there's a few months there, a couple months. months. Um, so step one, put the app out there. And then we already knew because it was so MVP, there were so many features and things that like were just missing that like clearly needed to be added or else it's kind of useless right so based on that mvp getting the feedback to make sure and like validate like okay these are the three features that we need to add to make it useful for this person because right now it's kind of just like an interesting thing so how do we validate what we've already built and then uh, revalidate what we're about to build. So that way, we're actually moving in the right direction. So we call that B is adding the new features. And then C is the actual like usage of the product. So okay, we've got great feedback, we've got these seven people using the app. And now we need to get 17, 27. like those numbers need to be going up. Because if you just have if you go a full year, and you have especially for a consumer app, that's like, we're not B2B, like if you're, if you're selling an enterprise product, it's okay to have three customers, like three people using it, and you're iterating off of that. But for for what we're doing, it's direct to consumer, It you can't just base everything off of seven people. I mean, I'm a user of the product, my co founders are users of the product. So that's three right there. So we you know, you need to have a number bigger than seven. I don't know why I'm using seven, it wasn't seven, maybe it was like 35. But it, that was step C is like increasing those numbers. So that way, and it's on a weekly basis. So I would from yeah, 2015. So for five, years now, I've sent a monthly investor, call it investor. We didn't have investors at the time, but I've sent a monthly investor update for the last 61 months. So over five years. And so from that very beginning, like February, I think March or April of 2015 is when I sent out that first one and we were tracking the numbers uh, of like how many people are using the app downloads and stuff like that. And then when we added the subscription on top of that, that's That was another KPI, and that's our main KPI right now, the number of paying subscribers. But that didn't come until 2016. So I think a lot of people see MySwimPro or any other technology company, and they're like, oh, you know, here's their trajectory, and they kind of miss the first, like, two years <laughs> or 12 months or six months, whatever. It's different for every company. And there's a lot of stuff going on, but there's no, like, public results to show for it. So, for example, when we went from App Store launch to iterating and adding those features we didn't really have anything publicly to show for it i don't think i even started the instagram account at that point for example like we didn't have social media yet we didn't have a lot of these things we're just really focused on that problem solution and is this helping these people and are they are they sticking around is that going up yeah
0: so your monthly updates were the reason i invested but i want to go back to something else that that i find amazing that you did i see so many people looking for tech co-founders and what I see usually happens is, you know, business person cashes out their 401k, you know, brings sixty to one hundred thousand or something, spends it with a consultancy, and then runs out of that money. Has a product, has no customers, and then they need a tech co-founder to, you know, add new features or something so they can go to market. When they bring on the tech co-founder, the tech co-founder is doing it in nights and weekends because there's no money to pay this person, and everything goes great at first, but then eventually. The, the tech co-founder is not getting anything done and the status updates are just pretty much, you know, I've done nothing since the last time we met and eventually the whole thing falls apart. How did you, how did that work for you? How did you
2: keep keep your tech co-founder engaged keep them, you know, producing work? Yeah, it's, I think it comes down to being really passionate about the same thing. So if someone doesn't really want to work on the product, then they're going to need to get paid. They're going to need, like, it, I think this applies in, in life in general. Like, you know, if you're, if you're working on something that you don't really care about, it's, you're going to need more motivation and incentive to keep working on it so that's why people are willing to work for a lower salary if they're working on something they really like you know maybe they can make 10 or twenty or fifty thousand dollars somewhere else but it's something they really don't want to do and they wouldn't be happy and i think it comes down to finding people who share a similar passion and even if it's not like for us it's swimming it could be putting a product in the market and and being a part of that startup journey. That's actually, that's half of it. So it's not necessarily the industry that you're in. It's actually the process, the entrepreneurial, like, like we're going to, we're going to work on something together. We're going to build something, go from zero to something. I think that's actually half of it. So for our team, I was just very deliberate in the milestones. Like I talked about where it's not just, okay, we're going to build a great swimming app. It's going to be amazing. Everyone's going to go swimming. Yay. Let's go to the pool. It's more about this is the vision of what we're working towards. These are the milestones. And if we can successfully execute step 1 step 2 step 3 we're going to be on our way to this really big thing that we're building towards and that i think for anyone is is really motivating when you know that you're working towards something and then you can see along the way as you hit those milestones you can see like oh yeah we we worked on this and then we check that box off like we did something even if there's no public Uh, glory (laughs) associated with it. Just having the ability to like work towards something and then like check that box off. Okay, now we're going to work on this. And always setting your eye on the next target. And I think that is the principal job of the CEO, the founder, whoever's like running the organization. So that's, that would be like fall on me. So even today, you know, like we're going through a really difficult time right now. Like our company from a financial standpoint is getting decimated. Like pools around the world are closed. We create a product for people to use when they go to a swimming pool and now they can't go to a swimming pool oh my gosh
0: you know the pivot there's so many things to talk about you know the pivot crowdfunding branding let's try to wrap in branding and crowdfunding before we go to audience q a can you can you put those two things together your number one tips for branding
2: crowdfunding and so branding is all about being really consistent and, and it sounds so cliche but being yourself so here's an example. Um, I'm wearing a white sport coat right now. Okay. So I never was (laughs) 10 years ago, I wasn't gonna be like, I'm going to be known as the guy who's wearing a white sport coat at every public speaking thing. Like, that's not how you think about it. So the story for the white sport coat, and it's part of my personal brand, my swim pro brand, we're blue and white, all that stuff. So we go to an event in Chicago, Tech Week Chicago, and everyone, the startup thing at these conferences, everyone wears their startup t shirt, and then maybe they'll add a black sport coat. It's pretty lame, everyone does that. Um, so we go to Tech Week Chicago, there's like a hundred startup tables. And I was thinking to myself, you know, we've got the shirt, let's stand out. Let's, let's. I'm looking at my closet and I see a white sport coat. Like, not this one, but I see a white sport coat. I'm like, we gotta wear white sport coats, let's get one. So then my co-founders, they didn't have white sport coats. So I went to Macy's and I, and I bought them white sport coats. We go to Chicago, we're wearing this outfit roughly and everyone's like trying to talk to us. And it just, from there we learned like, okay we were differentiated. And so we should probably do this again and so from that point on that was five years ago now almost five years ago i've just been really consistent with it and to build a brand you have to be really consistent over time and i think that's true for content marketing that's true for building the brand of a business that's true for building your personal brand you can't just do something once and then expect to be known for it and the benefit for especially a technology company or an entrepreneur of having a strong brand or a personal brand a business brand is that As the world evolves, as we go through a pandemic, which is like the most unforeseen circumstance, or as the market of technology changes, like I mentioned, the Apple Watch did not exist when I started the company. So if you build the brand as the world evolves, you continue to be relevant. And and we'll see it in the the big scale companies, like at the end of this pandemic in 2022 or whatever, the companies that have the most iconic brands, whether it's um, Apple or I don't know, Netflix or Disney or whatever, or McDonald's, they're all going to be fine because people trust the brand and they could build completely different products and offerings and people will associate with that brand. So even though you're not McDonald's or Apple, you can still build that brand equity in the mind of your consumer or followers or whoever whoever you're trying to serve. And if you can do it consistently over time, then whatever it is that you pivot to or adapt or as the world changes, you're going to continue to be relevant over time.
1: Ferris, your story reminds me of something we did really early on at Bamboo. When we hosted one of our first events, we had no marketing money. And so we bought little bamboo plants and gave them to people. And it was an event where they went to different spaces. And so all over downtown, people were carrying these bamboo plants and were taking pictures and asking about it. And so it made me realize, wow, we should have done that over and over and over again. (laughs) Um, But before we hop into questions here in a second, We think it's super unique that you've done, you're one of the few people I know personally that's done a successful equity crowdfunding raise. And uh, right now crowdfunding is a tool some people are turning to um, since traditional VC is a little bit in crisis. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on what made you go that route and was there a tip that you could share on how to successfully crowdfund? I know uh, it's probably hard to nail that down in a couple minutes, but we'd love to hear your thoughts.
2: Oh, for sure. So we raised twice online equity crowdfunding. In 2017, we raised like 130,000 from 137 investors. And then last year in 2019, we did another round on the same platform called WeFunder. And we we sort of rinsed and repeated what we did the first time and we raised close to half a million dollars. So in total, um, 600,000 across two rounds, a little bit over uh, 300 investors in 36 different countries. And the reason why we chose that but this was way back to end of 2016 we hadn't raised any money outside outside capital yet and we were looking at doing the more traditional route of like okay let's you know talk to investors and you know we're gonna raise like half a million dollars it's gonna be great like let's go and do that typical tech startup story um and early on i was getting mixed feedback about like oh your market's not good like the typical we're not going to invest in you uh, from investors but i had uh, actually a partner from y combinator Told us, hey, there's this platform called WeFunder. They went through our cohort, and they will allow you to raise money from the people who use your product. And so, because you already have a loyal user base, like you have an email list, like you have people who already know who you are, you know, if they each invest, you know, 500 bucks or a thousand bucks, you get a hundred of those people, and you have, you know, an email list of a hundred thousand people. If you get a hundred people that don't, you know, not invest a thousand dollars, you just raise a hundred thousand dollars. So that's the route we decided to do because. I I never thought we would do equity crowdfunding, to be honest, but it it sort of happened organically. And that was from a recommendation, did some research. And the reason I think we were able to raise somewhat successfully is because we had an existing community that we were tapping into. So I would not recommend trying to do equity crowdfunding unless you already have a solid group of people that you are just going to invest money because, and like, so we have, I'll, I'll put the number. So we have call it 300 investors and, Of those, I personally know that have nothing to do with swimming, 50 of them. So these people are just investing because they, like, know who I am. And they're like, Ferris, I like you. I like what you're doing swimming. It looks like you know what you're doing. Here's $500. Here's $100. Here's $1,000, whatever. The other 250 though, came from either our community in swimming. Like, we're literally emailing our list. And at the time of last year, we had an email list of over 300,000 people. So, you know, like... So in that regard, we actually didn't raise that much money. Like we didn't even, you you can raise up to a million dollars through this regulation CF. And we didn't hit that. Like we only raised like 460,000. So even though that sounds like a lot, when you put it against our numbers, it's like I'm emailing 300,000 people. So like, it's like you can get 300,000 people to do anything. Like, I mean, to a certain extent, like someone's going to do something in that large of a list. So I would really only encourage people to explore that. And it doesn't have to be 300,000 people. If you have a more loyal group of like personal contacts, like your own investor list of, you know, a thousand people or 2000 people, like your own contacts, you might be able to, you know, set a campaign investment minimum of $500. And if you can get a bunch of your friends and colleagues and people in your industry to put in between 500 and $5,000 per person, you might be able to quickly raise, you know, 50 to a hundred or $200,000. Um, because the math actually works out like that. So on our second campaign, what we learned is we should increase the investment minimum. The first round, it was a hundred dollars. And what we learned is it's just as much work to get someone to invest a hundred dollars as it is like a thousand. So we made the minimum $500 and we changed the perks around. Um, and it, it was really simple. So, um, I also made a YouTube video that's thirty minutes long about how we raised six hundred K on equity crowdfunding. So. I'll
1: really link to your YouTube channel because I know a few people were asking for it um, for these great videos you've made. I want to know how you got to three hundred thousand email subscribers. That's huge. Um, we also have eight questions, a few questions coming in. Um, so maybe we'll switch to do Q and A. Ferris, does that work? Let's do it. All right. Please upvote your question. Drop it in. We only have another 20 to 30 minutes with Ferris, so we'll try to get all the questions answered.
0: This is the best part of the show. It doesn't work without you, though. You got to put your questions in. You got to upvote the ones you want Ferris to answer.
1: You always think the questions is the best part of the show. (laughs) (laughs) you think the questions is is the best part of the show?
0: That's where they can get their questions answered. Ask a big question, get a big answer. Could change the course of the company.
2: I'll answer your your questions on 300,000. Okay, and
1: then we'll dive in.
2: Yep. So 300, so now it's closer to half a million, but a lot of these come from like, we're really lucky. So in the sense of when someone downloads the app, they're creating an account when they create the account, we're getting their email. So as long as someone's creating the account, we're, we're in the clear. Um, Cause they're like accepting that they want, they're giving us their email literally. So that's one part of it. Another way we get emails is on our blog. We have the, the email capture. So um, we actually see a few hundred per week that put in their email on our blog. Our blog maybe gets, at this point, like 100,000 uniques per month. So of those, a certain amount of traffic ends up getting into that, like, pop up that, hey, you know, here's more information. Um, Those are the two primary ways that that email list has grown. And it's happened over time, like, it, you know, kind of like the million downloads, it's just slowly (laughs) increasing over time.
1: So, What's your approach to creating content? Is it similar to the product, always adding value, and solving problem? I think your content's also really fun and fresh. Like I see you doing crazy videos all the time on LinkedIn. Um, do you have a couple like, of wow. values, or yeah?
0: So i always remember your your video where you're in a speedo or something. I don't know whatever some kind of swimsuit thing in the snow with a hat on doing yeah. snow angles.
1: <laughs> I'll never. i <I'll>,
2: remember, <laughs> oh, remember that. That's a good one. That's a good video. So content, marketing, uh, marketing strategy. Content has to do one of three things. and either it, need, it either needs to educate, entertain, or inspire. I would say for us, about 80% of content is focused on educating. So we are looked at as thought leaders in the space, meaning we want to help people improve their performance and health. So, you know, instructional content, like I referenced in the beginning, like people go to Google and YouTube. How do I do X, Y, Z? We want to have the articles and the videos that answer that question. So 80% of our content is helping people literally like improve their technique, their training, their fitness level, their nutrition, their uh, rehab if they're injured, all that kind of stuff. And we create videos and articles like a lot at scale through all of our channels. And then the other 20%, maybe it's 30%, are split between entertainment. So that would be like, hey, this is a really fun uh let's go do something silly in the water there's you can use your imagination what that looks like and then for uh inspiring so we share stories members of our community like um it's crazy i interviewed in campus marches park uh my co-founder for 25 minutes on youtube it's got like 200 000 views now he lost 100 pounds swimming four times a week following the my surprise so look, here's the guy who who you know he, he makes the android app he lost 100 pounds the transformation looks I mean, if you guys know anyone who's lost that kind of weight in a relatively short amount of time, it's like night and day. You know, he's like my height. So losing 100 pounds is insane. So to see that transformation and then to do a story about it, that's really inspiring for people. So he's just one example. We get a lot of stories and we do interviews, whether it's um, like a video interview like we did with Mike or we're on location. So we create a lot of content around sharing these inspirational stories but a majority of it is educational we're trying to help people get better at whatever it is they're trying to improve
1: thank you for that so this is also kind of tied to one of our top questions from samuel what are the core attributes of a successful brand and then he wants to know if you think about loyalty referral marketing as part of Mm -hmm. your approach
2: yeah i think to answer the second question first on loyalty and referral that's an area that we're not very strong at and i think uh, that's going to be like the next direction of our, our marketing, like the next layer, because there's things you can do in the app to drive like vir- viral referrals and, and, and get people to recommend the product to other people. We don't really have that built yet because believe it or not, five years in, we're still focused on solving the pro- like that product market fit. We're still trying to iterate on that because if you don't get that right, then it's a lot harder for people to recommend it to others because it doesn't actually solve the true value first. So we're still working on that problem solving but we're mo- very soon we're moving into that referral stuff and that's going to be really big for us I think in the future um and then the first part about brand authenticity and what's a good brand I think authenticity is, is a lot of it but being consistent and being true to the same message over and over so um, I think a good brand is really uh they're repeating the same thing over and over in different ways to maybe the same group of people maybe a different group of people the most iconic is apple so apple makes products you know you know everyone knows what they do but the why is because they believe everyone can be more productive and creative and all of their content messaging and the way they build the products is reflective of that so over time whether it's an apple watch the airpods the iphone they have this this association of quality and this this product is going to help you be you're the best version of yourself. It's going to make you more creative. It's going to make you more innovative. You're going to be able to, to get more stuff done. But they're not selling like, this has a 2.9 gigahertz i9 processor and it's better than the, <laughs> That's they're not talking about that. It do, it's a great technology, but that's not what they're selling. They're selling the fact that over the last 30 years or 40 years or however long Apple's been around, that they've been able to be really consistent at delivering products that help people do their best work and be more creative. And because they're so consistent in that messaging through different products, people trust them. And that trust happens over time by being really consistent and basically saying the same thing over and over in different ways.
1: Got it. That was super helpful. Thank you. Next one is from EJ. EJ wants to know, what was your first successful tactic to help you attract and attain your team talent?
2: But track talent, that's a great question. I think putting out content around what you're doing, and and this could be, it doesn't be like video content, like vlogs, like just writing articles about, hey, we just hosted our first hackathon, this is what it was, this is how we do it. And that way when people are looking at potentially joining your company, they see, oh, this is how they operate, like this is the culture, I wanna be a part of that. And I think for me, I'm very public with everything we're doing at the company, sending out investor updates. I put a lot of stuff on LinkedIn, on my personal YouTube as well. All the social media. Um, and also speaking of social media, shout out to Adam, our part-time model is on the yeah. <laughs> follow us on my super oh Adam.
1: <laughs> so, that.
2: Yeah, so make sure make sure you're following us on social media. But back to the question, um, I think being really consistent in sharing what you're actually doing, and people people get excited when they see traction from day one to day two. So if they yeah. see, oh, every month they've done something interesting then people see that and they're like i want to be a part of that rather than that you put out like one article every year and it's like this is our year in review this is what we did over the year there's a big gap you know in that 12 month window where it's like you can you can summarize it in the one article that you write or the one video or whatever but if you can show over time that you've done stuff And that stuff could be a lot of different things. If you can do that over time, then it's going to be a lot easier to recruit people by putting yourself out there. And it's really hard because when you're building a company, that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to solve the problem. You're not trying to like market something, you know, like the process of it. So you have to be really intentional. And I think that's one thing, especially in the last like two years, we've been really good at being, putting all of our stuff out there and letting people see what we're working on.
1: I love that. Thank you. Uh, Next question comes from Brenda. Hi, Brenda. We hope you're well. Brenda wants to know, how do you get clarity around a problem that you want to solve?
2: Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, I think think it's super helpful to immerse yourself in the industry of the problem that you're trying to solve. So if, like, for example, uh, we in MySwimPro, we are solving a swimming-related Uh, thing. And I happen to be a domain expert in it. But not only do I have experience, I actually go to like swimming pools, I talk to swimmers. So I spend a lot of time listening in the industry. If I personally were to try and start a company in like medical devices, It's something I don't really know about. So I would have to go and put myself in that industry and listen and talk to the right people. The more people, the right, more right people that you can talk with in the industry, the more clarity you're going to have around what you're trying to do and the problem that you're trying to solve. So if you're looking for that clarity, it's really making sure you're talking to the right people and doing it consistently over time, because you could spend a week, you know, talk to five people every single day and week you'll talk to 35 people and they could be the right people in that industry but you're actually not going to get the right clarity because that's not enough time one week isn't enough time to actually digest and then iterate on the questions you're asking and the approach that you're taking with those people if instead you talk to three people every other day for a period of 10 weeks you would talk to not, you know, not 10 times as many people, but you would have way more clarity in that 10 weeks because you will have been able to like refine your approach. So I think it's a combination of talking to the right people and doing it over time. So that way you can really identify what the heck you're actually trying to solve. And I don't, I mean, there's no like right answer to do it. You know, it, it's it's uh, putting yourself in the trenches and, and asking for help when you need it.
0: I like how you count a week as seven days instead of five days. You're working all seven days. I want to hop in and talk about, So, you, you, let's say you're running that medical industry and you'd say you want to learn about, a lot about it. How soon would you expect to launch a product in that industry,
2: uh, MVP? So I, I can't answer that question because I don't know that industry. So I what? would hopefully know the answer to that if I spent like a few weeks doing the right research. Uh, maybe even actually the internet is so amazing. You could probably go on YouTube and learn enough about to answer that question. Um, that's the amazing thing. Like you can go on the internet and learn a lot, like without wasting time. So I don't know the answer to that.
1: Maybe it's a better way to think about it. If you were to launch a new product, um, from your own company, uh, I mean, does it take weeks, months? Like how long are you listening to people? Maybe there is no right answer, but
2: yeah, that's a great question. So I can tell you this from what we actually have done at MySwimPro. Last year, we launched a new product called MyTriPro. It's a different market. It's similar swimming and triathlon. There's some overlap, but they're definitely two different things. And we launched it internally. And this is something that we had been hearing from our community that they want from day one. You know, When you talk to a triathlete, you know they do triathlon the way they talk about it. When you talk to a swimmer who doesn't run, there's a very clean division. So in the very beginning of MySwimPro, we were talking with a lot of people and we identified. Okay, there's clearly a market here of people who need help, and we're not solving it with my swim pro. This truly warrants a different product. And so last year we actually decided to go out and do it. I would say that that process was a few months of actually making it happen, but it wasn't the entire company. Like actually, Adam, the, our model here, he's the one who built the app all by himself, pretty much. So it's, wow. it's not like the whole company is focused like repivoting. It was more like an experiment. Now with the pandemic, everything has kind of been like thrown out the window. And we're like, we're new strategy. Um, So that app still exists. And it's still there. But there's very few triathlons happening this year. So for us, it's like, okay, it took us a few months to figure out and, and we're like, we, we're not the same level of domain experts in triathlon, as we are in swimming. So, you know, Adam, my co-founder and I, we went to a clinic in Los Angeles, we talked with different triathlon coaches, we got certified as USA triathlon coaches, we did specific surveys to our existing audience, And, and that whole process took us a few months from, yes, we're going to do it at this time, we're going to go and educate ourselves, we're going to do surveys, we're going to build the product, we're going to launch it, that was a period of a few months.
1: Thank you, that was super helpful. Uh, we have seven questions left. So we'll try to get to all of them here, you guys. Next question is from Dave, the other Dave. He I think he asks this question every
0: show. <laughs> the audience, one the one audience one? loves it. They
2: upvote it.
1: Yeah. What is a book you've read lately, Ferris, that you want to recommend?
2: Whew. Books. To be honest, I'm not the I'm not the book reader. I'm the blog reader. Um actually, what's funny is uh, Josh Linkner, he was on, I think two weeks ago or so. And he has, um, if you go to his site, he has the the daily. Uh, I think it was 21 days or something, his daily, like, uh, he writes, like, basically an article. And I subscribe to that. And I've been reading that. So every single day, it's Platypus Labs. And he sends out, like, some innovation tidbit and a story. And he talks about, he's written a few books, too. But he talk he basically summarizes that stuff in a, like, you know, seven-paragraph, bite-sized thing. So I've, I've been reading that uh, somewhat religiously every single day.
1: That's great. I love it. Josh Linker had like a dozen answers to that book. I mean, <laughs> yeah. to go back and read this listen to his talk. <laughs>
2: yeah, Go go follow Josh on social media. Adam's yeah, recommending,
1: For us. It was funny.
2: Adam's recommending the culture code. He liked it. So
1: Oh, the culture code. Good. Awesome. Next question comes from Brendan on the topic of crowdfunding, what mindsets and habits help teams build a successful crowdfunding campaign? Do you have a checklist or thoughts
2: around what gets to your goal? Mm. Um, there's a lot of pieces to that. So when it comes to a successful crowdfunding campaign, there's luckily a lot of best practices that are already out there. So you shouldn't feel like you need to reinvent the wheel for like, all right, we're going to go raise money online. Like this is going to be the first time this has ever been done. I mean, there's literally thousands of campaigns that have been done and there's best practices, everything from the way the campaign video needs to be set up and like what the flow of, I mean, you need to have the founder or founders talking about why they started the company and the exciting vision. And a lot of this is best practices. So like the video, the 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 content, like a think of like a pitch deck to an investor. So you gotta have like, what is the problem we're solving? What is the solution? You know, here are some screenshots. If it's a tech thing, or like what are you actually trying to solve? So a lot of that is best practice. I think the biggest thing separate from what you can just, find on the internet is making sure you set a very strict uh, timeline and execution around like what you're actually going to do once the campaign is launched or what you're going to do before the campaign is launched. So before you even launch the campaign, like we did this on the second round, we had like a pre-sale, like I, I, I surveyed my entire investor update list. We, they knew that we were about to raise before we even raise. And I had people commit soft commit, like, how much money they're actually going to invest before we even launch a campaign. So having a really strict timeline around what you're gonna do before launching the campaign, when you launch it, how long it's gonna be open, what you're gonna do, and making sure you really think about that stuff because when the campaign is live, that's actually like, it's it's over. Like it's Hopefully you've already figured out what you're gonna do. You'll be nimble and you'll adapt as you learn new things and stuff happens. But by the time you launch the campaign, you should have already figured out when you're going to message how you're going to do it like before you even before you even launch and that way by the time the campaign is going to close you'll already have a good idea of like what should have happened and then you can do those adjustments along the way but you should have a really strict plan with your team like what you're going to do before it even launches
1: i think that's one thing i've seen people fail on it's not treating it with enough focus and planning and strategy it's not just throwing up a video and putting something together you have to work on it probably full-time or part-time. You probably devoted a lot of resources to it, right?
2: Yeah, it's like fundraising for any, it's the same thing. So the the CEO or the founder, whoever is fundraising, that's like their only focus or almost their only focus for that period of time. So we got kind of lucky in that the second campaign we did, we only did it for three weeks. So we had the campaign open for three weeks. But like I said, when the campaign is open, you're actually not doing as much work. Most of it happens leading up to the actual launch. And then it's like maintenance mode because you're just executing what you planned on doing before you even launch the campaign.
1: Awesome, that was really helpful. Uh, Next question, Ferris, how did you decide what value you should provide for free versus paid app subscribers?
2: Oh, this is a loaded question. This is great. So (laughs) we have changed this so many times um, and it's, it's tricky, but I think I'll give some context. In the very beginning, 2015, we launched a free app. Everything was free. That being said, it didn't really do very much. You know, it was a pretty v- basic uh, application. It, it couldn't do much. So we knew we were going to add a subscription business freemium model. So you know, at some point, we knew we we're going to add some features. We're going to put a paywall behind it. You can access for a subscription. That version has iterated like five times in terms of like what has gone behind the paywall, how much money. actually costs like we've changed our pricing between monthly and yearly what the offering looks like and as a part of our pivot like two weeks not two weeks like last month we launched the biggest update where we basically we have a 30-day trial and Almost everything is behind a paywall. So you can use the app and you can log some workouts for free forever. But if you want to access any of the content, just the, the direction of our business, the way we're moving, you need to be a paying member. And I think the market also has changed. So, like, you can't, you don't have to completely make this up on your own. You can just look at things that offer a similar value proposition to what you're doing. So, for us in the fitness category, we're the swimming training app but there's a lot of apps that are there for like weightlifting workouts and things like that. And you can just survey the market and see what's in an adjacent market and just look at what their pricing is. Look at what they're offering is, what is free, what is not. Obviously you should, if you're delivering value, you should be charging money for it. Um, And there has to be a right balance of if you're a freemium model, how much value can you deliver for free where they continue to use the product and they're incentivized down the road to getting the the paying subscription for us is actually really tricky because we produce so much content. There's so much value for free that we create on the internet. And as we produce more and more content, like we're talking about almost a new video every single day, 10 to 15 articles every single week. So if you really are just sit on the computer, you can learn a lot from all the stuff that we offer. There's a lot of videos of like me explaining stuff. There's, There's a lot of different stuff out there. So as we produce even more content, we've put more of our app content behind the paywall. And that's why today a majority of it is behind the paywall because we're charging for the value that we can deliver through software, which you can't get through our YouTube channel. If you go to our YouTube channel, you can binge watch a lot of content of me explaining something about swimming, but that's not the same as actually getting like a personalized training program that you can do through our app. So it's really tricky, but I would advise just looking at what the adjacent companies are like in adjacent markets, like what those companies are doing and just learn as much as you can and then iterate over time.
0: Ferris, I've been wondering about this. You've you've got an app to help
2: swimmers. You put out a lot of content to help founders. What's up with that? Yeah. So I think it's part of just paying it back. I also enjoy it. So, I mean, here, hopefully someone's getting something useful out of this, but, um, for me, I'm always learning from other people and I'm a big fan of that give first. Mentality. So I know along the, I've I've learned a lot of stuff because I'm you know connecting with other entrepreneurs and they're sharing their time and advice and stuff like that. And so for me, I figure, well, people are always asking me the same questions over and over. I may as well you know put that content out there so it helps more people. You know, one thing that's it, it kind of has frustrated me, and it's it's cool at the same. I don't know. It's cool at the same time. I've been asked to do like guest lectures at a lot of universities, and I I'm always asked to talk about the exact same thing. And I think. <laughs> like one of the questions was about equity crowdfunding so i've i've spoken at multiple universities about equity crowdfunding and here, so i go into the, the lecture room and there's like 30 students in there whether it's like mba or undergrad and i basically say the same thing over and over and i'm thinking to myself it doesn't make any sense to only put this information in front of these 30 people like why that doesn't i'm i'm a repeating the same thing over and over but it's, it's, I want to democratize that information. It doesn't make sense that because these people went to University of Michigan, and they have X amount of money to afford that class, like these people, sure, some of them will start companies in a few years. But these are not the people who need the information the most immediately. And it doesn't make sense that it's like this elitist, like, oh, look, we brought Ferris in, because he's really experienced to talk about this one thing. So I figured, let me democratize (laughs) this information. And that way it can alleviate my time, because I don't want to it's hard to say no. Like people ask me the same questions, and I'm like, yeah, I'll do a culture. And it's like, I can't, it's not sustainable. So let me put the content out there, and I want to democratize it. And so on LinkedIn, yeah, I've been super aggressive as of quarantine, putting out a lot of this information, and I'll continue to do it.
1: I think I would add that it sounds like you're not just a thought leader on swimming, but you're a thought leader now on entrepreneurship and crowdfunding. And so, Hey, hey. How to make content around that to make it easier because you can't talk to everyone every day with free phone calls, right?
2: Right. <laughs> so let's just put out the content and have some fun with it.
1: Um, we'll try to get to these last two to three questions. Maybe we can do one minute answers. Um, okay. Vic wanted to hear more about that pivot you just talked about. What are you doing now while swimming pools are closed?
2: Yeah, so we uh, added dryland training to the application, which means basically at home workouts, stuff that you can do to stay in shape that's swimming specific. Before we focus 100% on pool swimming so to use our app you need to go to a swimming pool you can do open water and stuff but majority of people go to a pool so the pivot was basically in less than a month we filmed over 200 unique videos we launched eight new training programs we built a new subscription offering so i mentioned the 30-day trial we we changed our pricing model we have a swimming pack a dry line pack we did all so shout out to the team like i'm just explaining it but the teams that want like they're the ones who actually did everything we, We basically put out a lot of new content. We reshape the business model. We do three live sessions per week. One of them is actually where I'm sitting right now. Two of them are live workouts. And we put out a lot of different content now, different marketing strategy, business strategy. And the premise comes back to the brand. We are trying to continue to educate people, inspire them and entertain them. Now we just do it in a little bit of a different way, but we're the value and the why is the exact same. So that is the pivot and it's still evolving as we speak.
1: I love it, thank you for sharing that. Uh, maybe we'll take one last question. Chad wants to know what's the best way to introduce swimming to a new community or city?
2: Ooh, okay, so <laughs> this is a potentially loaded question because People ask us, I'm trying to learn how to swim. Can I download the app and then learn how to swim? Uh, Not really. So there are, in a lot of communities, there are a lot of programs at YMCA's like learn to swim programs. Um, In Detroit, they have it for kids. It's called Detroit Swims. It's amazing. But uh, it's really difficult now because a lot of that stuff is canceled until next year. But every community has these organizations that teach people how to swim. So if you're trying to get into swimming, that you have to learn how to swim first and following an in-person Uh, instructor is really the only way you can do that you can't download our app and then learn how to swim that's not safe I do not advise that big disclaimer don't run into the pool with your phone being like oh it's telling me to swim that's not going to work out well so uh, step number one is like learn how to swim from an instructor and step number two is finding a like master's swimming program which almost every city has some version of that and that's for adults and then the age group equivalent if you have like a nine-year-old or ten-year-old these are USA clubs so In America, USA Swimming is the national governing body. So go to usaswimming.org and they have like a map and you can like learn a lot about different community resources from them.
1: Ferris, this has been so helpful and it's insightful. Thank you. Before before we usually end, we always ask, do you want to leave the listeners with any last sentiment, thought, moment of inspiration?
2: Oh, inspiration? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, So I think if I mentioned it and just hearing myself, think out loud in the last hour, I mentioned a lot about consistency and doing something over and over and over. And I think even with my uh, vlogging, like YouTube entrepreneurship content, like if you I put out these great, I think they're great videos, but they're not really getting that many views per se. But it doesn't really matter because I'm so consistent with it. I know that in the long run, that's going to pay off in terms of like more people are going to see them just because being really consistent with them. So I mentioned it in brand building, in iterating on the pricing. So to everyone who's listening, if whatever you're working on, if you can be really consistent over time, and not just like oh quarantine, I worked on something for two months. That's not being consistent. Consistent is like like um, you know years, <laughs> and it sound, it's it's kind of sucks because it's like oh just gonna go on forever. But being really consistent, like week after week after week, unstopped for two years, three years that's when you're gonna see the biggest impact because everything you do compounds on each other. So I would encourage everyone to be as consistent and stay hustling.
0: Well, hey everyone, this has been great, huh? Can you show your appreciation? Give some virtual claps in there.
2: Woo! Thanks for having me guys, this was super fun.
0: Absolutely.
1: We are going to be- our last
0: episode of Coping with COVID. We've had a, a great time. Hope you've got a lot out of this and we'll, we'll see you on our next adventure. Bye. See you guys. Yeah.
3: Thank you for listening to our Coping with COVID series brought to you by Bamboo Detroit. If you would like to view all of our virtual episodes, you can go to www.crowdcast.io forward slash David Silva-Smith, again that's forward slash D-A-V-I-D-S-I-L-V-A-S-M-I-T-H. This podcast is produced and brought to you by Bamboo Detroit, located in the heart of downtown Detroit. Bamboo Detroit specializes in co-working space and amenities for entrepreneurs and forward thinkers. Bamboo Detroit, where we do more together because Detroit is for doers. If you would like to support our podcast, you can become a sponsor of the Doers Network. We have gold, silver, and bronze packages available. If you have a business you would like to promote, you will be able to reach over 10,000 listeners around the world each month at your fingertips. So if you want to reach our audience of founders, CEOs, innovators, and leaders, become a sponsor today. For more information, email us at info at bamboo detroit.com we appreciate your support by subscribing to our podcast right here on the doers network thanks for listening
1: you've been listening to the doers podcast where actives grow and thrive the doers podcast is produced by bamboo detroit network for more information visit us at BambooDetroit.com.